Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host Icy Cedric, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. This is our third book review episode and again, I'm going to be having a look at two different books and hopefully you'll enjoy them. They are very different books. In the last couple of book review episodes, I've tried to pair books that went quite well together, but in this case, I just thought they're both good books and it'll be interesting to see what other people think of them as well. Now, the two books that we're going to be having a look at are Tudor Folk Tales by Dave Tong and The Pre-Raphaelite Language of Flowers by Deborah N. Mankoff. So the first one that I want to talk about is the Tudor Folk Tales one. And it's really easy to think of the Tudor period as being one of strict class and gender boundaries. Or you might have a look at the shenanigans of the ruling royal family and sort of work backwards to assume what the era must have been like. Obviously, this is a period of the Reformation, the country switching back and forward between Catholicism and Protestantism. You've got Elizabeth I sponsoring people like court astrologer John Dee. But then you've also got the unison of the royal houses of York and Lancaster with Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. So you can sometimes get a little bit bogged down in the royal stuff that's going on. And Tudor Folktales, by comparison, aims to sort of dispel some of these myths and entertain us into the bargain. Now, the book uses a dual-pronged approach and it brings the Tudor era to life. And Tong's focus is actually on the ordinary people living ordinary lives, so you don't really get any salacious details about court life here. And that really is part of the book's strength because it makes it a lot more down-to-earth and a lot more grounded than some of these other books about the court might be. And let's be honest, I mean, there's so much out and about the the royal family anyway in this period. It's quite nice to actually hear about the ordinary people that makes a change. Now, the first part of this dual-pronged attack is to use snippets that are actually taken from court records held in Norwich. Why Norwich, you might ask? And during this period, it was basically second only to London in terms of size and wealth. So it does act as quite a good representation of Tudor life outside the capital. So Tong uses these snippets to flesh out the historical context of the period. So this is obviously all sorts of things like why people were held in the stocks, why people were punished for different things. And you really get a sense of the actual people because in many cases their words were actually captured as well. So it's a great way to actually find out how people felt and thought about things in this period and it does also act as a really good introduction for the second part of the approach and this is where the title of the book comes in so tong basically includes retellings of folk tales that would have been common in the tudor period and each of these tales comes after the historical context provided by the records and this in itself gives them greater value and depth and this two-pronged approach is a really good one and the book is all the richer for it because if tong had simply created a book about Tudor life based on the records in Norwich, it would have been interesting, but it could have run the risk of just being another historical book. Same as if he'd simply retold the Tudor folktales without any sense of context, it kind of would have been difficult to understand why people were so fond of these stories in the first place, but because he's combined the two, we'll get a greater understanding of why the tales were so popular in the first place. And herein lies 
the real value of Tudor folktales because he shows us Tudor life as it actually was, not as we may have assumed it to be. And the stories, both in terms of the tales and the historical records, explore the treatment of servants by their masters, approaches to child-rearing and marriage, and the general opinion of paupers, among many, many other things. And read in this way, we basically realise that the Tudors weren't actually that different from ourselves. And their preoccupations may have been around the destination of their immortal soul and not how many likes their social media posts get, but ordinary everyday Tudors suddenly become a lot less alien and a little more familiar. And it is true, the folk tales themselves aren't as memorable as the tales collected by the Brothers Grimm in the early 19th century. And I think there's few producers who will be queuing up to adapt them for stage or screen. But that said, some of the tales are particularly of quite a sort of devilish, dastardly figure called Howler Glass, they would certainly make interest in viewing if Netflix decided to do something a little bit different. But the tales are charming nonetheless, and they do provide quite a fun diversion from the fairy tales that I think really have been made too familiar in their retelling. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed Tudor Folk Tales. It was a review copy sent to me by the publisher, the History Press, but all my opinions are my own. I think you know me well enough by now to know that if I didn't like something, I would say so. But I did like Tudor Folk Tales. I do recommend it for anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about the Tudors or is just interested in folktales from the period. As I say, the other book that we're going to be having a look at is The Pre-Raphaelite Language of Flowers by Deborah N. Mankoff. And this I actually bought, so this isn't a review copy. This is based on me actually spending my hard-earned money on it. And this one's an interesting conceit because what what she's done is she's collected together a whole range of paintings by the Pre-Raphaelites. And in some cases, just artists who were dimly associated with the 19th century art movement. And she's then decoded their paintings, but she's really put a focus on what the flowers in the pictures mean. Now, bearing in mind, these paintings were largely done in the Victorian era when floriography, or the language of flowers, was a really huge deal. So you could send somebody a message by sending them a particular type of flower. And if you combine flowers, you could obviously then send more complicated messages. People often on blog posts when they talk about floriography often say how, oh, you could send a message and nobody would know what it meant. And that's bollocks because of the fact that anybody who knew the Victorian language of flowers would know what your message meant. But it did mean, though, that you could say something without having to actually say it, if you know what I mean. So you could say sorry by choosing the correct flowers rather than actually saying I'm sorry in a note. So it kind of it was a more of a symbolic set of gestures rather than necessarily a coded language because as I say every, like anybody who wanted to send flowers would pay attention to what the flowers meant before they sent them. So she does look at as I say a range of paintings and you do have quite a thorough introduction where she both introduces the pre-Raphaelites. So if you don't know who they are it's the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and they basically set up this collection of artists because they wanted to reach back sort of through art history to the period before Raphael when they felt the art was more true and had something to say a little bit more than what it had become by that point in the 19th century. And three of the most famous founding members are John Everett Millay and I guarantee you will have seen some of his artwork because his painting of Ophelia is one of the more famous ones from the Brotherhood. But there's also one, uh, The Pear Soap Boy, which people, obviously listeners in the UK, you probably will have seen on adverts where it's just a little boy blowing bubbles and then pears put their logo on it and it became an advert. 
And the fact that originally the painting was a, a meditation on mortality and the fragility of life is quite an interesting picture to choose for soap. But there we go. And there's also Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who is most famous for his dalliances with his muse Elizabeth Siddle. And there's my favourite, William Holman Hunt. So they're the three sort of main figures from the period. But the book does include a lot of other artists as well. Now, the book does include some discussion of female artists as well, because there were obviously female members of the Brotherhood. But it's just quite fascinating the way that she's decoded these images. And it's quite an easy book to read because it's divided into the text and the discussion on one side and then the other page is the actual painting itself. So it's beautiful to look at just for the paintings. But for example, I've looked at one here and it's The Beloved or The Bride, whichever, by Dante Gabriel Rossetti, which he painted between 1865 and 1866. And in this one, Mankoff's talking about what the different parts of the image mean, but then just talking particularly about the, the flowers. And obviously there's lots of roses in this one. So there's a damask rose, which highlights the woman's complexion, like the female character, the bride in the image. And then there's also a cabbage rose, which means something else. And then there's Persian lilies, which they kind of represent sensual pleasures and everything. So it's kind of what you get after the marriage actually takes place. And then there's another painting called Vivian by Frederick Sandys. And this one's from 1863. And in this one, uh, Vivian apparently is a figure from Arthurian legend who actually seduced Merlin. And he taught her magic, and but she actually trapped him with one of his own spells. So she's sort of portrayed as being this quite haughty beauty in the painting. And she's got a whole load of peacock feathers behind her, which Mankoff thinks signifies luxury and the vice of liking luxurious things. And she's all an apple, which obviously recalls things to do with the fall of, of humans with Adam and Eve in the garden. And in the in the painting, Vivian's holding a rose and a sprig of Daphne. And according to Mankoff, traditional flower law actually identifies the Daphne with coquetry and the desire to please. But it's also important to note that every part of the flower was toxic. So it's kind of that almost toxic femininity alongside the rose, which obviously has other meanings and associations, which incidentally you can learn about if you listen to my episode specifically on the folklore of the rose. But basically it is a really interesting book. None of the readings of the paintings are hugely in-depth because of the length of them. So some of them you sometimes feel it's a little bit short-changed and some of them could do with being a little bit longer. And I do sometimes feel like the, the language of flowers bits kind of shoehorned into the last paragraph or so because she spends more time talking about the background of the painting or the legend it was based on because the pre-Raphaelites were really big fans of using myth and legend and so on. So they're like, really, they're kind of the ideal art movement for the folklore crowd because you get a lot of work by John William Waterhouse. A lot of his work deals with things like naiads and Merlin and sort of the Arthurian legends and everything. And obviously um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain allusion to Shakespeare in there as well. She gives more of, a, of an assessment of the actual artwork and, and where it came from. And then you get the language of flowers bit sort of towards the end. And I kind of would have preferred more of the what do the flowers actually mean? Because that was incidentally why I picked the book up. So I do feel the title is slightly misleading. But at the same time, she has collected together a really interesting group of paintings and it is fascinating when you see them all collected in one place how the flowers do kind of tie them all together and I think that there's perhaps more work to be done there by someone who's really really like floriography is their thing 
there's probably space available for somebody to look at them a little bit more in depth. But it does just go to show that if you look at Victorian art, you're never just looking at a painting of a person or a thing. There's always a message in there. There's always a coded thing. There's always more to look at. So if you do like the Pre-Raphaelites, I do recommend the book because I say the images are beautiful and it's really nice to find out more about them. If, on the other hand, you're wanting to learn more about the language of flowers, I would recommend actually just buying a book about floriography instead because that it doesn't necessarily give you the, the wealth of information that you might think that it's going to. So it depends on what you're hoping to learn as to whether I recommend the book or not. But as I say, it is absolutely gorgeous and the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood did create some absolutely stonking works of art. So you can find the links to my book reviews for both of these if you want to actually have a look at my, the written version the links are below in the show notes and then you can find the links to different stores where you can buy them if you do want to pick up your own copies from there and otherwise we're going to i've already decided what the books are going to be for the next episode so the december episode of the book reviews is going to be two books about ghosts because let's be honest december is all about all things dark creepy and ghostly and that's how it always has been and that's how it always should be that is it for me for this month for the book reviews if you do want me to review any books, because I am reviewing books that are either related to folklore or about folklore, or are novels and fiction and so on inspired by folklore, if you have anything you want me to review, again, please just send me a tweet at IC Sedgwick. You can send me a message on Instagram at IC Sedgwick if you don't use Twitter, or you can send me an email IC at icsedgwick.com and let me know what you'd like me to review next. Otherwise, have an absolutely fabulous month if you only listen to the book reviews. Have a fabulous week if you're a regular listener and I will see you soon. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com. And that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio.